Let's go. Welcome in, everybody, to the last episode of our Deep Dive Bible Study, The Kings of Compromise, Part 33. Oh, that's a good number to end on, right? That was the age at which Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And it's also Larry Bird's number, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, my childhood hero. Anyway, welcome in. Sad to say, the Deep Dive is taking a pause after tonight. For a couple of weeks at least, and I don't know exactly the direction we're going from here, okay? Here's my question for you. I hope you're in the chat, and if you're not in the chat, leave a comment below if you've watched this after it's been live. Where do you want to go next? I have a couple of thoughts. I have a thought that we will do topics uh, for a full year. So we could do like a topic on tongues and interpretation of tongues for today or for not today or whatever. Uh, of course, I believe for today. We could do, you know, topics like prophecy, the end times, um, the views of the end times. We could do a topic healing, physical healing, uh, how to pray, um, how to study the Bible, those kind of things. So that's on my heart. And then I also have another crazy thought, crazy idea, which is to go through, you know, what I love to do on the deep dive Bible studies, go through books that you, you wouldn't go through on a Sunday morning. Um, and in this long form format, it gives us the privilege to do some weirder books. Let's be honest, there are some weird books in the Bible. So I was thinking about Leviticus. Let me know again in the comments. What do you think about that idea? Maybe a combination of Leviticus and Numbers. Those are very difficult books to read. Or the law. We could do a study on the law of Israel, the Torah. Um, unpacking God's intention and the, and the historical context behind some of the more difficult laws. I was inspired by Pastor Reacts Volume 2 when I did that one from Deuteronomy chapter 22, I think it was. Anyway, lots of options on the table, and I'm not tied to anything in particular. So I'm going to give you guys a voice. Let me know in the chat, or you can send it to ask at timhatchlive.com. But uh, make sure that you're hitting that like button and the subscribe button if you haven't already. And uh, if you uh, are listening to this on a podcast app, get over to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash timhatchlive, and let me know in the comments. You don't have to watch the whole video if you listen to it audio, audio, audibly. Let me know in the comments, though, on the, on the channel. What, where do you want us to go next? Because I, I am an open book at this point, and we're going to pick this up sometime in September. I'm not going to make any promises. The Deep End will be back Tuesday after Labor Day. The Deep Dive will come back shortly thereafter. I am also looking at uh, some studio changes and maybe moving once again. I am never settled. Anyway, welcome in. We're going to talk about the end of the monarchy. We're going to talk about how judgment begins in the house of God. Have you ever heard that? We're in 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25, the last two chapters of the Kings of Compromise. And some people are not familiar with this phrase, but it is actually a phrase from the Bible itself and not from the Old Testament, from the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14, it says this, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or a meddler, and some translations say a gossip. 
It says in verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, judgment is coming for both the house of God and the people who are outside the house of God. The good thing, though, is that if you're in the house of God, judgment cleanses you. If you're not in the house of God, judgment condemns you. So everyone is standing with an open door to the house right now. The open door is Jesus Christ. He is the door. He is the way. He is the path. He is the, he is the light. He's the life. He's everything. He is the one who makes it possible for us to come back to the Father, come back into a um, restored relationship with the Father that we had and enjoyed in Adam and in Eve before the fall. We can have that again, but it is through Christ and Christ alone. If you receive that offer, it does not mean that you will escape all forms of judgment. It does mean, however, you will, for, you will escape eternally all forms of condemnation. And so while God might still bring judgment on your life, it is judgment to cleanse you, but never to condemn you. And that brings me to today's study in the Kings of Compromise. Let's hit it. Okay, like I said, open up to 2 Kings chapter 24, and we're going to read through the text. I won't bother you with the through the text bumper right now, if you don't mind. Let's just get right into it, shall we? 2 Kings 24, verse 1, in his days, and we'll talk about who that is in just a moment, Nebuchadnezzar, there he is. You guys know that name, don't you? Nebuchadnezzar with the 90-foot tall statue with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <laughs> Here is how his journey begins in the Bible. This, this verse is powerful. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And this is the verse, actually, that is really powerful. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it again according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Wow, that's huge. Because right away, as we start to look at the complete uh, domination of Judah, the last remnant of the monarchy of Israel, the kingdom that was reigning supreme under David and reigning supreme under Solomon, is now coming to a disastrous end. And right off the bat, the writer of Kings wants us to know, the Lord did this. Now, in whose days? Well, that's in Jehoiakim's days. There it is from 2 Kings, the previous chapter 24. I'm uh, uh, sorry, this is chapter 24, 8 and 9. That might actually be incorrect. Let me go to this actually. Oh, aren't you glad that I have this? <laughs> the Bible cam on the Logos Bible cam, Jehoiakim. Okay, so it was in the days of Jehoiakim, who was 28, 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned for 11 years. His mother's name was Zedidah, daughter of Badiah um, of Rumah. And he did what was evil in the eyes or in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Okay, let's do a quick review of where we are in the monarchy before we get uh, any further here. This is the lineage of the kings of Judah and Israel. Judah is in the purple. That's the righteous remnant, the southern kingdom. Uh, Israel is in the turquoise or bluish, light bluish color there. So Israel, like we said, gone, long gone now. Uh, they, they suffered domination at the hands of the Assyrians. What we're looking at here is the final three 
kings of Judah. So Josiah, the last righteous king, and you remember that he held the Passover celebration. He thoroughly removed all the high places, the false images of Israel, uh, Judah, and um, celebrated the Passover, inviting some northern kingdom remnants down to celebrate the Passover. And the scripture says there was no Passover celebrated like the Passover that Josiah celebrated. Josiah then got involved in international affairs with the king of Egypt and uh, lost his life tragically. The kingdom was handed over to his son Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz was evil and he didn't last long at all. And then Jehoiakim, which is where we are now, takes over for Jehoahaz. Now, we're going to pay attention to these other guys too, because these chapters deal with Jehoiakim, Josiah's second son, Jehoiakim, his grandson, but also then the, the, the kingdom is then handed over to Zedekiah and um, he will be Josiah's third son to reign on the throne. And then Gedaliah, who becomes a kind of puppet regime governor uh, at, at the leadership of Babylon. What we are going to see is dark. What we are going to see is tragic. And yet it's not the end of Israel's story, is it? I mean, as dark as this chapter is, Israel is still around and the true son of David is still reigning supreme on the throne. So let's get further into the text because all I wanted to pick up from that first verse, the first two verses there, again, was that this was the hand, this was the hand of God. And you can't miss this. This is important. It was the Lord doing this. He sent them against Judah to destroy it. Okay, so that's, that's huge. And uh, we're going to go a little further in the text and see that this, is, this emphasis is, uh, is restated, just in case you missed it. Let's look at verse 3. Surely this came upon Judah. What came upon Judah? All that we're about to see, all the destruction, all the torment, all the judgment of the nation. It says, surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, for also, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed, for he filled, look at what this says, he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. And then this last line, and the Lord would not pardon. Wow. This is... So there's so much to say about this text, and I want to make sure that I say it as clearly as I can. The Lord takes seriously, number one, the sins of his people. If you go back to Deuteronomy 28, uh, let me see if I can do this real quick so that we can reference it, because it's kind of like amazing to think about. Uh, Deuteronomy 28 is when the people of Israel have half their tribes stand on one mountain and then half their tribes stand on another mountain. And one mountain represents the mountain of curses and one represents the mountain of blessing. And it's Ebal, and I forget the name of the other one, but uh, they're supposed to stand on each one. One of the mountains was kind of like a desolate place and one of the mountains was kind of like a fruitful, abundant place. And so they, they pronounce the blessings on the fruitful, abundant place. If they obey the Lord, fruitfulness and blessings will occur. But if they abandon the Lord, God's going to hand them over to their enemies. He's going to strip away all their property. They're going to lose everything that they have ever loved. And I do have it now up on the screen here on the Logos Bible cam. So this is Deuteronomy 28. And I just want to note something here because Deuteronomy 28 starts with blessings for obedience. Okay. And it goes for 14 verses. <laughs> okay. Now watch how long the curses go for disobedience from verse 15 all the way down 
Way, way, way down. Look at this. This is insane. If you're not watching on video, you have to watch this. All the way down to verse 68. 15 to 68. So you have to see something here. It is a tremendous privilege. Oh, let me just highlight one verse from Deuteronomy 28. It says, the Lord will scatter you. If you disobey, if you abandon this covenant, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. There you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, neither which your fathers have known. And among these nations, you shall find no respite. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. The Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languished soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day shall be in dread and assurance of your life. I mean, this, this is as dark as dark is. And God warned them about it up front. He front loaded this warning in the law to Israel before he ever gave them an ounce of land in the land of promise. So why do I bring this up? Because there is a tremendous benefit to being God's people. There's a tremendous privilege to being God's people. But guess what? In the words of the great Spider-Man movies, with great what? Power comes great what? Responsibility. With great privilege before the eyes of God comes great responsibility before the eyes of God. And so when the people of Israel who were sent prophets and miracle workers like Elijah and Elisha and all these people trying to bring them back and they ignored and they just furthered their disobedience and continued in their sin and unrighteousness. It got to the point where they had this wicked king named Manasseh and he was sacrificing children at the altars of Molech. And the scripture says, filling Israel, Jerusalem with the blood of the innocent, that is blood of children, the hammer comes down. Boom. The, the, the Lord takes the sins of his people seriously. So should we. He also particularly has a hatred of one sin in ancient Israel and in the days of Jesus and in our day today. What, what sin is that? It's the sinning against innocent blood. Because look at what Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones, children, to believe in me, who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This is the Lord speaking. You do not mess with children. Please do not fall for that lie. I absolutely hate that lie. Well, all sins are the same. No, they are not. Not even Jesus believed all sins were the same. There are some sins that are exceedingly wicked. There are some things that are an abomination to the Lord. And this is one of them. This is beyond abomination, in my opinion. Uh, there's a lot of abominations in the Old Testament. This is, this is beyond that because there's no, forgive, there, there's no forgiveness for shedding these innocent children's blood. You, you're, the Lord's going to hold you accountable. Now, if someone, of course, abuses a child and repents and turns to Jesus, there is no sin that God cannot forgive. But judicially, this one gets the worst judgment. I am convinced. I am convinced. And um, some people don't believe in hell. And I would like to say, well, where are you going to send all the child molesters? Where, where do they go? The unrepentant, the abusers. Where, where? If there is no hell, then a, child, a guy can abuse children and molest children for 80 years. And then when he's caught, just put a gun to his head and shoot himself. And, and that's it. And then he just dies in peace. No, 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 no. There is a judgment coming. And for that, we should be glad. Um, so back to the text, though. Again, surely this came from the Lord. And I'm bearing down on these verses because we have to remember something. This is the record of Israel's nation. This is what they experienced. And it's kind of amazing how often they are so open to say, we were bad and our God judged us and handed us over into the hands of other nations. 
You know, ancient people didn't talk like this about their gods and their religion. Ancient people talked about their gods and their religion like this. We are awesome and our gods made us awesome. And our God loves us and we love our God and our God is going to beat your God. But ancient Israel's story is so different. (laughs) Their story is we stink and our God judged us repeatedly because we couldn't get our act together. (laughs) Somebody once said very famously, I love this line. The Bible is not such a book as man would write if he could or could write if he would. The Bible deals very frankly with the sins of its characters, even when those sins reflect badly on God's chosen people, leaders, and the biblical writers themselves. This is Lewis Sperry Schaefer, great uh, theologian of the last century. You know, there's so much to that line, but it's so important to point out this, that um, you're going to experience people saying, you know, Christians are so bad. And our answer should not be to get defensive. Our answer should be, yeah, and that's why we need the Lord to judge us and, and the Lord to chastise us and the Lord to discipline us. <laughs> that should be our response. Like you're, You say you're a Christian, but you have so many things that don't line up. Yeah, I know. I, I still need the Lord to discipline these areas of my life. That should be your response. Like that also, that's just like cold, cold water on their fire, isn't it? You, you know, hey, you Christians, you're not supposed to do that. I know. And I believe me, the Lord is dealing with me big time on this. I, he's upset with me. He's more upset with my sin than you are. <laughs> you know, you, that would be, that might be just a nice heads up for some of you to stop being on the defensive all the time. Oh, no, no, wait, 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 wait. No, I'm not that bad. Wait, I am bad. I am bad. Yes. That's, that's why I need Jesus. He came to save me from my sins. Okay, now let's take a look-see here at uh, verse 5 and 6. It says this, Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the books in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? We have that in the Bible, by the way. So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. Like I said, this is, uh, you know, just a, a mess of people shifting around in leadership because the end of the monarchy is coming. And the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt fr- uh, from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Now, the text brings up the fact that the king of Egypt was subjected by the king of Babylon because, and this is important, you have to understand, if you back up, you remember that Josiah lost his life interfering with the king of Egypt attacking the king of Babylon. And the king of Egypt said, um, you know, we're not going to, you, don't mess with us. This is the Lord doing us this with us. And Josiah thinks he's going to defend Babylon because Josiah was kind of like his grandfather, Hezekiah, because Hezekiah liked the Babylonians for some reason. And it all backfires. <laughs> Eventually, that Babylonian kingdom that Josiah liked so much and interfered in Egypt's attack of, that king, that kingdom comes and basically decimates the land of Judah. The point is simple for God's people. Don't make alliances and don't get inter- don't interfere with the pagan uh, debates. Don't get involved in that stuff. Don't get involved in these international affairs that, that are always going to be there. It, it, it was, it was the, um, the prescription of our first president, George Washington, who said, don't involve yourself in international disputes. Isolationism. <laughs> That's what Israel should have had. That's what our nation probably should have. Don't be the world's policeman. Now, people, some people say we have a moral responsibility to that. I don't think so. I think we have a moral responsibility to take care of the people that are in our nation and take care of them well and lead them well and guide them well and then give them the opportunity to flourish well and not send billions of dollars in support of foreign wars. I I, I don't know. I'm getting political right now. I should save that for the deep end. Let me get back to the text. 
Let's talk about Jehoiakim because he is really a rebellious man. I have here underneath that verse, Jeremiah 36. You have to understand that Jeremiah was prophesying all through the reigns of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and then Zedekiah, and then Gedaliah. And he was the lone voice of Israel saying, submit to the Babylonians, submit to the Babylonians. He was telling them this. And the false prophets were saying otherwise. No, you'll never be handed over to the Babylonians. The Babylonians, will not. God can't, God won't allow you to suffer defeat because we have the temple and we have these holy places. And so as long as the temple stands, we're good. And they put their faith in the old institutions of their religion and not in the word of the Lord. And so many times in the church, denominations and uh, uh, Christian leaders and even entire movements of Jesus put their trust in their religious structure, but not in the word of the Lord. And Jeremiah is a voice in the wilderness calling out saying, you got to get back to the word of the Lord. So what happens is as Jehoiakim is ignoring the warnings of the prophets, and Jeremiah says, let me send him a copy of the law. So he does. He sends him a copy of the law through his associate named Baruch. Baruch sends it to the palace. And then Jehoiakim has it read. And look what it says here. As Jehudi read three or four columns, this is of the word of the Lord, the king, this is Jehoiakim, would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they, nor did they tear their garments. There was no respect in Israel from the king down in the palace for the word of the Lord. We are seeing this happen in our world today. We are seeing... Uh, Entire denominations closing, dividing, uh, selling off their property, closing their doors. Why? Because they held on to the vestiges of their faith, the external extremities of their faith, but they did not honor the word of the Lord. Church, learn the lesson of Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim. It is not about what we build. It is not about our buildings and our numbers and our status and our style. It is always and forever about the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth shall disappear, but my word, Jesus said, shall remain forever. Not the least dot, not the least tittle, that's the cross of the T, will disappear from the law, Jesus says, until all things are accomplished. You've got to have an honor for God's word or you will pay the price. And so Jeremiah, we're going to go back to him regularly in this talk. He is warning Israel and Israel's kings and Israel's kings are stubbornly refusing the word of the Lord. Again, because they're tied to the, 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 the structure of the church, but they're not tied to the substance of the church. Okay, verse eight. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned three months. <laughs> That's not a good sign, right? Three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta the daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. So Jehoiakim will be the king who watches the destruction of all that Solomon built one piece at a time. Uh, judgment is deconstruction. It is the process by which all the good that God has given you, it just comes away from you. I look at America right now, such a blessed country. But if you go to downtown areas of America's cities, you go to downtown New York, you go to downtown San Francisco, you go to downtown almost any city in our country right now, and you will see the deterioration and the rot physically before you of a nation that is on the precipice of judgment. I am, I am thoroughly convinced if we do not turn to the Lord, if we do not have a great revival, what we are seeing in the inner cities of our country right now, those once 
beautiful shopping centers of many inner city centers of our country. That is going to spread like gangrene outward to the suburbs and to the rural parts of our country. And this is a picture of that here in um, 2 Kings. Okay, verse 10. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem and, and the city was besieged. Now, just so you know how they besieged cities, they would build, they would encamp around all the walls of the city and they would not let anybody in or out. So you couldn't import, you couldn't export, you couldn't get food. People would basically starve, they'd whittle away, they'd shrivel up, and then when they were weak, the nation would come in and just destroy them because they didn't have any strength left to put up. And this is what's happening here with the king of Babylon. Verse 11, it says, And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while the servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of the gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. Now, Jehoiakim actually does something here that future kings will not do. He does surrender to Babylon at the warning of Jeremiah, reluctantly so, but he does only after his city is besieged. And it's going to actually end well for him because of that, amazingly, but we have to wait until the last uh, verses in, in this book. But he sees the writing on the wall. First thing to go out of the temple, by the way, is the gold. The gold was a picture of the glory of God. Solomon had covered the inside of the temple with gold. Every piece of the temple, every wall of the temple was covered with gold. And now that gold is being taken away. And you're going to see as the temple and the city, piece by piece, are carried off uh, three successive, um, uh, uh, what, do you, what do you want to call it? <laughs> carrying off <laughs> moments, uh, carrying away moments of Jerusalem and the holy city happen. This is the first one, the gold first. Uh, verse 14, it says this, he carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials. Now he's talking about the leaders and all the mighty men of valor. That's the warriors and then the captives, 10,000 10, of them. And all the craftsmen and the smiths, the people who make stuff. So you have industry being ripped away from the nation. This is a picture of judgment. You have important people taken away. Then you have the doers and the craftsmen and the, and the, and the uh, machinists, if you will, being taken away. The economy is going to be dried up. This is what happens when God judges a nation. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land. He took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place. And he changed his name to Zedekiah. So like I said in that chart, this is Joash's third son, Mataniah, who will now be named Zedekiah. And Zedekiah becomes kind of the centerpiece of this, of this uh, era. He's got a lot of problems. And I see in the picture of Zedekiah, a picture of the modern church in America. And I'm going to show you why, but we got to talk about his story a little bit more before we get there. Zedekiah, verse 18, was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast him out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So what does Zedekiah do? Uh, he does the exact opposite of what Jehoiakim does. And it won't end well for him. And the reason why is because he's caught in the middle. Jeremiah is a prophet who, and by the way, 
This is not the same Jeremiah that is listed as his um, grandfather. No, this is a different Jeremiah. Jeremiah, in uh, chapter 27, warns Zedekiah. And he says this. He says in verse 12 of chapter 27 of Jeremiah, Do not listen to the words of the prophet who are saying to you, You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. Jeremiah is consistent with his word. He told Jehoiakim, you're going to go serve the king of Babylon. And Jehoiakim listened. But Zedekiah doesn't. And the reason why is because he's got false prophets in his ears. He's got false prophets in his ears. Prophets who are telling him, nope, you're good, you're good, you're good. And he used to say something. He used to say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That's in Jeremiah 7. And they used to trust, again, the structure of their uh, religion, but not the substance of their religion. And, and he is not listening and he won't listen. And it won't go well for him. And, it, and it's a lesson for the church, the modern church today. Be careful who you listen to because you have so many options. You have YouTube preachers, you have TV preachers, you have um, Christian television preachers, you have endless opportunities with podcasts, and there are tons of preachers out there that will no longer talk about judgment and discipline and the fear of the Lord. They won't even talk about sin and righteousness and repentance. It's all about dreams and purpose and identity and all the things that God wants to do in your life. And it's like, wait, you, you've got a clean house. God wants to clean you and purify you and make you righteous and holy. And sometimes to do that, he has to hand you over to some exilic, some spiritual exile seasons in your life where you are cleansed. Uh, Zedekiah won't listen. And so uh, we turn the page to chapter 25 in 2 Kings, and here's, here's what it says. In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it, and they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. So now where Babylon had backed off because Jehoiakim surrendered, now Zedekiah, who is really a puppet king, he's a puppet king. Nebuchadnezzar put him in, in, in charge and he lets the power go to his head and he thinks, okay, now I can rebel against Babylon. And oh, the reason why he thought he could rebel against Babylon is because Babylon had lost a battle against Egypt invading them and they, were, they had this minor setback politically. So Zedekiah takes it as an opportunity to say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resist. I mean, you got to be stupid to not listen to the word of the Lord and to follow what went well for your father, or in this case, his nephew, and, and do what um, the, the, the king that preceded him and do what Jeremiah, the prophet of the Lord, is saying to him. But the problem was this, okay? And this is a problem for all of God's people in every generation. False prophets vastly outnumbered the true prophet Jeremiah. Let me say it again. Uh, false prophets vastly outnumbered the true prophet Jeremiah. It was like 90 to one. <laughs> you know, when you're trying to discern the word of the Lord and everybody is glad handing you and you got a, pl a plurality of people saying, yes, this is the world will of the Lord. Pay attention to that one voice who says, mm, wait a minute, discernment here, discernment here. Uh, and he there's a, there's a point where Zedekiah has kind of like this breakdown where he says, okay, maybe I need to listen to Jeremiah. So he goes over to Jeremiah and says, okay, what's going to happen? And this is in verse, this is in Jeremiah 34. Uh, Jeremiah says, okay, you want to know what's going to happen? Here's what's going to happen. Thus says the Lord, verse 2 of Jeremiah 34. 
the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm giving this city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. You shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye and speak with him face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Um, this is, this is interesting because (laughs) Jeremiah is speaking to the king and he is telling him the truth, even if it is hard to hear, but there's another reason. And we're given from Jeremiah as to why Zedekiah will be punished and why Israel will be punished. Look at this in uh, the same chapter, chapter 34 of Jeremiah. uh, There was this moment where they set the captives free because that's one of the things that God wanted them to do. Stop enslaving your brothers. Stop using people as possessions. Stop objectifying people. Treat each other as brothers. Don't enslave each other. Set them free. And Zedekiah does. But then they all, they all renege and they bring their brothers back under captivity. And so Jeremiah says, for this you're going to be judged. This is it now. The Lord gave you a chance, but now it's over. He says in verse 15, you recently repented and did what was right in my eyes, proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free according to their desire. And you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. So here we have from Jeremiah's lips, another reason for the nation of Israel being judged. They were taking advantage of each other. They were enslaving each other. They were economically abusing each other. And I know that Christians get, you know, the headline sins of Christians are sexual sins. And that's, that's equally evil, but greed is also evil and abusing people financially and taking advantage of one another. And, um, dishonest scales. That's one of the things that the Lord hates in Proverbs chapter six. Uh, we've got to see what caused Israel's downfall, an obsession with sexual morality and an obsession with more money and sex, the two great sins of ancient cultures and modern day cultures that God will judge us for. We have to learn how to treat each other fairly, honestly, purely, and justly. And when we don't, God holds us accountable for that. Okay, verse three, back to second Kings of uh, 25. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land, that a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls by the king's gardens, and the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But, verse 5, the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. Yikes. This is how the monarchy ends, with Zedekiah watching his sons be slaughtered in front of him, and then his eyes are bound out. So the last thing that he sees is the death of his children. I can't imagine a worse fate. Okay, back to Zedekiah, because I told you he would be this picture of the church. The church is always caught between two things. The church is always caught between two temptations. Well, not, sorry, temptations is the wrong word. Between two poles. Pole number one, listen to the word of the Lord, which we should do. Pole number two is listen to the people. And they could be good people. They could be church people. They could be godly people. They could be Christian people. They could be prophets, teachers, self-proclaimed prophets and teachers. Zedekiah's problem was that he was a people pleaser. And he could not obey God because he was afraid. He was afraid of what the people would say and the people would do to him. 
So Jeremiah warns Zedekiah again and again and again, and Zedekiah says, yes, 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 but I'm afraid. I'm afraid that, uh, actually, let me just give you the verse because he says it very clearly here in Jeremiah 20, uh, 38. Let me, let me back up in Jeremiah 38 and read it to you. It's verse 17. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life will be spared and the city will not be burned with fire. Of course, this is before the events that we just read in 2 Kings. And you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city will be given into the hand of the Chaldeans and they will burn it with fire and you shall not escape from their hand. Now look at this. This is, this is Zedekiah's um, heart, the, 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 the tornness of his heart. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Judeans. Who? He's, he's afraid of the people that he leads. He's the king. These are his subjects. Now I know he's a puppet king put in place by the king of Babylon, but he should have listened. He should have listened to Nebuchadnezzar, who was the Lord's tool of judgment upon Israel. But instead, he has more concern for what people who he leads says. He says, I'm afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them and they deal cruelly with me. I'm afraid of what people will think. I'm afraid of what people will say or do to me. And Jeremiah said, you shall not be given to them. Obey now the voice of the Lord in what I say to you, and it shall be well with you, and your life shall be spared. Here's what Jeremiah was saying to Zedekiah. This is the Lord's doing. I've been talking about this for ages, and Jeremiah does talk about that endlessly in his uh, prophetic book. But we also saw it here in 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25. God is doing this. Nebuchadnezzar, Jeremiah will say, is God's servant to execute judgment on God's people. Zedekiah, take the medicine that God is giving you. Just... <laughs> Save yourself. Some of us refuse to take God's medicine. And we don't want to listen to the Lord. And we don't want to confess our sins. And we don't want to um, let go of greedy endeavors and lustful endeavors and prideful endeavors and say, Lord, you are humbling me. Thank you. You have purged me from the love of this world. And now you are setting my heart free from attachment to earthly things so that I can set my eyes on Jesus. And it's painful, Lord. But thank you for the medicine that you have prescribed for me. Zedekiah is not that person. He will not do it. And some Christians are the same way. They just will not listen to God's word when it speaks on righteousness, judgment, and purification, and walking away from the things of this world. And the end is death. The end is destruction. Okay, verse 8 of 2 Kings 25. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned, look at this, the house of the Lord. He burned the temple. God says, I don't, I don't need the house of the Lord to stand for me. Ancient cultures, this would have been a thoroughly embarrassing event. And the God of Israel is letting this happen. He's letting his own house that represents his name be burned to the ground. Why? Because it had lost its usefulness. What does Jesus say about the church? If you, the salt of the earth, lose your saltiness, you're no good. You're good only for to be cast on the street and to be trampled by men. With great power, with great privilege comes great responsibility. He burned the house of the Lord. He burned the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem and every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem. So now you're seeing piece by piece from the inside out, this, this nation, this great city of God is being handed over to its enemies. This is the judgment and it's a picture of judgment that is coming upon the world. 
And one day there will be a judgment upon this world. And the judgment begins with the house of God. We must let God purify us so as to be saved and cleansed. Um, because the only other option is to be condemned. Verse 11 of 2 Kings 25, And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. That was ancient practice because they didn't want the land to be overrun with foliage. Uh, and, the, and the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, this is verse 13, and the stands... And the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, we had talked about that, all these decorations that we talked about months ago on this season. The Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon, and they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes and for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the fire pans also and the bowls, what was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold and what was of silver as silver. Real quick, just kind of interesting is that what you see is you see pots, shovels, snuffers, dishes, (laughs) vessels of bronze. I get cracked up by this because these are serving utensils and these are like the pricey items in the temple, which is a cool picture of how Israel, even in its darkest days, was a picture of what God had called them to do, be servants, to Work in the temple the Lord was to serve. You know, if, you, if Babylon went and conquered ancient other peoples, they would go into their temples and they would see thrones or statues of their gods. And they would take those away um, as their prize. But when they go to the temple of Israel, Judah, they find, they find utensils. <laughs> because that is the heart of God. The heart of the house of God is serving. Not ruling. Not forcing, not subjecting. This, this is a cool picture. Even in this dark day, we see that that's all the Babylonians could find in the temple was utensils to serve. Pretty cool. Uh, verse 16, as for the two pillars, the one sea and the stand that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of the one pillar was 18 cubits and on it a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits, a latticework and pomegranates, all of bronze, were all around the capital, and the second pillar had the same with the latticework. Verse twenty, uh, verse 18, And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war, and five men of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah, And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. This is the end. It's over. Now they're great men and their chief priests and all their leaders have been executed. It's all over. This is a sad, destructive end to a once great and noble city. Moving on, just a few more verses left to this book. And over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, governor. Now when all the captains and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, governor, they came with their men to Gedaliah, but namely Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, and Johanan, the son of Kariah, and Sariah, the son of Tanhumeth, <laughs> the Netophathite, and Jaazaniah, the son of the Ma- Maakathite. Oh my goodness. Okay, let's talk about Gedaliah. <laughs> Forget all those other names. 
uh, Gedaliah is actually a good man. Now, he is another puppet king, but he is a good man who listened to Jeremiah and does what Jeremiah told the former king, Zedekiah, and Jehoiakim to do. By the way, he was the grandson of Shaphan, who was the secretary of state under King Josiah. And if you remember, Shaphan is the one who brought the word, the, 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 the book of the law back to Josiah, and Josiah repented. So he's from good stock. Uh, Shaphan also um, helped Jeremiah escape a pit once. And so this guy, his grandfather was good stock. He's good stock. Gedaliah is a righteous king. And he tells the people, uh, listen, listen to what, it says, what he says in, the ver- in verse 24. And Gedaliah swore to them and to their men saying, do not be afraid because of the Chaldean officials. He says, live in the land and serve the king of Babylon. Live in the land and, oops, live in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it shall be well with you. Yikes. You've you got to see that what Gedaliah is saying is exactly what Jeremiah has been saying for generations, for, for decades. First to Jehoiakim, then Jehoiakim, then Zedekiah, and now Gedaliah. And the only one that listens, the only two, Jehoiakim, who's dragged off to exile already, and Gedaliah, who is now in charge of who remains in the land. And the message is a message for Christians. Live in the land, obey your rulers, it shall be well with you. Uh, To Christians who are on the, this is going to hit some people between the eyes. You're on the Trump train. You're on the uh, far right wing train. I get you. I like you. I actually agree with a lot of what you say. But we have to learn (laughs) that we are not of this world. And Trump cannot be your prince. Jesus is your king and prince. He is your leader. Uh, You've got to learn how to live quietly and obediently as good citizens. I understand there is corruption in every area of our political spectrum. It is sickening to me. Joe Biden is as corrupt as they come. He is. But as citizens of this country, we have got to learn to engage with politics Rightly, nobly, honorably, but not desperately. That is to put our trust in heaven and his king and work down on this earth. And if our guy doesn't get in and if our leaders don't get elected, then we just say it's okay. God is in charge. And perhaps God has put us into political exile so that we will take our eyes off of Washington, D.C. and put our eyes on the throne of heaven. I know not everybody's going to like this text, uh, this teaching, but it's necessary. What does, second, what does 1 Timothy 2, 2 say? It says, pray for kings and all who are in high places that we may lead a peaceful and quiet, godly life, dignified in every way. Okay? Now look what happens, unfortunately, to people like this who say these things. Verse, verse 25, but in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama of the royal family, came with 10 men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. Oh, this has to be, this has to be like nails on a chalkboard for the Lord because they just won't listen. They just won't receive the judgment of God, the purifying judgment of God. Just listen. Do what I say. Nebuchadnezzar is going to purge the land so that I can give you rebirth. I, I'll bring you back, but, 
but you've gotten hooked on all these false gods and I had to purge the evil from among you. And I'm using Nebuchadnezzar to do it. And if you accept it, it will go well with you, but they don't. Because why? They are rebellious people and they will rebel against any authority. If it's not God, they will rebel against the world and the world's authorities. And we have to be careful as Christians that we don't fall into the same trap. We really do. We have to live quiet, peaceful, dignified lives in the eyes of unbelievers. More on that later. Okay, verse 27. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments and every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. And this is the end. This is the end of Judah. And notice that it's the one king who listened to Jeremiah and served the king of Babylon and lived peacefully is restored and allowed to give, allowed to eat at the king's table. And it's not the greatest thing, but at least he's not dead and seeing his son slaughtered before his eyes. And why? Because he listened to Jeremiah and he served well under the auspices of the evil king Nebuchadnezzar. He served God and God had kept him from demise. And by the way, uh, in the midst of this judgment, we have the seeds of rebirth. We do. We have the seeds of rebirth in, in a couple of ways. Number one, in the exile, during the exile, a guy named Ezekiel is called to ministry. And he is among the exiles by the Kabar Canal, and he sees visions of God, and he guides the people of Israel during those 70 years of exile to long for and put their hope in that God will restore their fortunes and rebuild the temple and raise them up. That, that great dry bones chapter in Ezekiel, I think 36, where he's talking about that the dry bones that have been decimated by exile will rise up again. The Spirit of the Lord will fill them again. They'll become a mighty army. God will bring them back. And this guy is raised up right after the exile to tell the people that. Secondly, we have Jehoiakim on the throne, technically on a throne, still alive. He's not dead. And it's a fulfillment of scripture. The scripture that Samuel said uh, to David, or I think it was Nathan the prophet who said this, your throne, David, shall be established forever. That's 2 Samuel 7, 16. Well, fast forward in the Bible to Matthew chapter 1. And who do we see in the lineage of Jesus uh, verse 11, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, that's another name for Jehoiakim and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Sheotel, Sheotel, the father of Jerubbabel. And then verse 17, skip down. So all the generations from Adam to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. You see right in the lineage of Jesus Christ, Jehoiakim. It's the grace of God is the promise of God. The seeds of hope are planted almost immediately after that great judgment came upon the nation. Let's tap into truth and finish this episode. All right, a couple of things. We're going to do this real quick. First, judgment is an inevitable reality for the human race. I, I, I am sh uh, shocked at the fact that 40% of Americans do not believe in hell. Only 62% do. Uh, by the way, a lot of Christians are jacked up about their belief in hell and heaven. The uh, theological views that hell is an eternal place 
of judgment where God sends all people who do not personally trust in Jesus Christ? Only 40% agree with that? This is, this is uh, <laughs> shameful. We, 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 are, we are struggling in our culture with the idea that there is a judgment to come. But there is a judgment to come. And listen to me very carefully. Your car's tailpipe has nothing to do with the end of this world. It is Jesus's job. Your emissions, your carbon footprint, these are all political speak. We will not be able to destroy this world. Jesus is in charge of destroying this world. And he will. He will bring a fire upon this world that will purge it and cleanse it and bring about a new heavens and a new earth. What you are seeing right now is doomed for destruction. And nobody wants to believe it anymore. But we know we need a hell when we see child abusers and uh, spouse abusers and uh, serial killers. <laughs> Suddenly we want to hell then. But there is a hell. There is a judgment to come. Now, here's the thing that I want to leave with you guys as a church. For the church, the judgment is a time of cleansing. Embrace that. Embrace the spiritual work of God's purification through some of the pains that he allows you in. Hebrews chapter 12, 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Zedekiah, Zedekiah could have been purified. Instead, he was purged. Because he was caught in the middle. He wanted to please Babylon and he wanted to please the people. And you can't do both. You've got to do what God says. You've got to listen to the Lord. And, and for those of you who look at your world and you get so worked up, can I give you some respite? W brings me to another point in tapping into truth. Jesus, our Lord, is fully in charge of the judgment to come. He's going to bring about judgment upon this world. And, and there is no one who can oppose him. There is no one who takes that role away from him. Again, not your car tailpipe, <laughs> not your emissions. Jesus is going to do that. But for you, it's purification now before he comes and does that. But for the world is decimation. Second Thessalonians chapter two, seven says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We know that only he who now is restrained it will do so until he's taken out of the way. And when the lawlessness one will be revealed, uh, sorry, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Uh, look at how Jesus would just wipe out the man of lawlessness, this, this dictator beast that will come. Then what happens after that? Revelation chapter 19, 20 says this, and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet and uh, who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So Jesus wipes out the evil dictators, the rulers of this world, and then he wipes out all the people who reject him with the breath of his mouth, just poof, blows him away. You say, oh gosh, that's dark. Yeah, it is dark because judgment is dark. It is necessary and it's coming upon the world. And this picture in 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25 is a picture of the end time of the world. Let me leave you with another thought. Christians, Christ would judge the world. Your job is to live representatively of the world to come. So know your role. Paul says to the Corinthians, for what do I have to do with judging the outsiders? This is 1 Corinthians 5.12. It is it is not those inside the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. 
Purge the evil person from among you. Take care of your own sins. Don't worry about the sins of this world. First Peter 2 encourages us, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to what? Every authority, every Nebuchadnezzar in your life right now, submit to their authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Now, there is a stipulation, and I will not ever say this without giving you this stipulation. When your leaders ask you to disobey God, you disobey leaders. The apostles set that example in the book of Acts. Judge for yourselves whether it is right to obey you or God. As for what we have seen and heard, we cannot stop talking about it. They refused to listen to the guidance of the leaders, the rules of the leaders to stop talking about Jesus. And so while we do whatever we can to live at peace with those who do not know Christ, who might be, in, who might be over us in our job, in government, in society, when they ask us to break with our faith, we break with them and bear the consequences accordingly. Understanding that that also can be a tool by which God uh, purifies us and cleanses us. The hope that we have, ladies and gentlemen, the hope that we have, I bring you back to my original thesis of this last two chapters of Second, um, second uh, Kings. If you are in the house of God, judgment cleanses. If you are not in the house of God, judgment condemns. And I know that judgment is not a fun topic, but it is the topic that ends the world. And so maybe, no, not maybe, but quite appropriately, it ends this season of the deep dive. Part 33, Kings of Compromise. That's it, friends. That's the end. That's our talk. That's our lesson. I'm so glad that you joined me for any portion or all of this teaching. I trust it was a blessing to you. It inspires you to trust God, worship God, and honor God with your life. Support the channel if you would. That would be very helpful to us through the Cash App. Look for my book, Ending Emptiness, coming out soon. Um, we finally have a date for 10 questions with Tim. That will be August 31st. <laughs> so first Thursday of the month is going to be the last Thursday of the month this time. Like this show, share it on your social media and subscribe to the channel and make sure that you hit that notification bell so that you can get notified every time we go live because we will be back with fresh new live content starting with the deep end season seven, episode one. I think it's September 6th. You can check for me. It's the day after Labor Day, Tuesday after Labor Day, back with the deep end. Other than that, God bless you. May God give you the grace to stand strong and to embrace his purifying work in these last days. Have a great day.